Hey, it's Daryl. As we get started, I wanted to let you know about a new course that I just released last month, and it is called Helping Others Grow. And if you are interested, uh, I want to give you a special coupon for podcast listeners, and the code is PODCAST21, PODCAST21, and that will get you $10 off the course Helping Others Grow. If you're interested, go to gospelforlife.com, and you can find out more information there. Okay, that's it. Let's get started. Welcome to the Gospel for Life podcast. We help churches make disciples. And now, here's your host, Daryl Dash. Welcome back to the Gospel for Life podcast. Today, I want to talk about church. Since a global pandemic abruptly closed places of worship, Many Christians have skipped church life, even neglecting virtual services. But this was a trend even before COVID-19. Polarizing issues, including political and racial strife, convinced some people to pull away from the church and one another. Now it's time to recommit to gathering as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman wrote the book, Rediscover Church. They believe that church is essential for believers and for God's mission. In an age of church shopping and live stream services, rediscover why the future of church relies on believers gathering regularly as the family of God. And I'm so glad to have Colin Hansen on the podcast today. Colin serves as vice president of content and editor in chief for the Gospel Coalition. He hosts the Gospel Bound podcast and he co-authored the book, Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. He serves as an elder for Redeemer Community Church in Birmingham, Alabama, and also on the advisory board of Beeson Divinity School. And he's somebody that I really trust and appreciate. So Colin, welcome. It seems like this is a tough time to rediscover church. Why does it seem so hard right now? I think one thing that a lot of people misunderstand or don't realize about this moment is that, let's say 25 years ago, before the ubiquity of the of the internet, a church leader had an information advantage and was seen as an authority in part because that person could bring to bear information people didn't have uh, through their education, through their networks, whatnot, their study. But now people come to church already with their views formed because of a Netflix documentary they watched, a podcast they listened to, a social media feed they followed, a a Facebook group they participated in. And so they expect their church leaders to simply reinforce those views that they already hold. And they're not really interested in adjusting those views in light of what a church leader might say. I don't think we've really come to grips with how big of a transformation that is. And I think the only way through it is to rediscover church as the body of Christ, which is essential, no matter what technological changes happen, that this is a, this ought to be our primary formative spiritual community, and that we ought to be able to see these relationships and these lines of responsibility and sacrifice and care and authority as being primary in our lives, as opposed to simply being another place to reflect our biases, views, prejudices, and and everything else. So absolutely, this is the time that we need 
to rediscover church, but for these reasons and many more, it's actually the least likely time that people are going to want to rediscover church. You know, Colin, it seems like you're highlighting two sides. So on the, the side of, of maybe Christians, there's all these factors that make church more difficult for them. But on the part of pastors, there also seems to be a little bit about conf- of confusion about what church should be and how to adapt to new realities. So, you know, I talked to an elder of a church over the weekend, and he was talking about their need to pivot to become a, a hybrid church and to maintain an online presence permanently. So, I mean, why is it so important that pastors get clear on some of the convictions about who the church is and what she should do? So, yeah, a lot of people are talking about this pivot to virtual church or hybrid church like you're talking about there. And I think the reason they're doing this is because they continue to think of the church as primarily an information dispenser. So a dispenser of of experiences and information. And so given the fact that everybody seems to want to consume their information online and they, they want these experiences online, why wouldn't the church do that? And why wouldn't the church want to be flexible at this time? Oh, man, um, I don't think they have any idea what they're getting themselves into, because if all of a sudden a church is primarily viewed that way within the Internet space, then all of a sudden, let's take the Gospel Coalition as an example. Let's take Hillsong. Let's take any group you want out there. The kind of teaching that I could marshal through the Gospel Coalition or the kind of worship experiences that could be manifested through YouTube um, by Hillsong are vastly superior to what any kind of local church can do. There's simply no, there's no chance. So all of a sudden, if you're, if you're unmoored from any need to physically participate in a congregation, in a location where you are accountable and they're accountable to you, then all of a sudden you're subject to all of the same factors that apply across the board on the internet. And that might seem, it's kind of like, um, think about the newspapers that thought in 1999, it would be really great to be able to go online. And then within 10 years, they were done because, wait a minute, why would anybody then subscribe in person? I mean, people will look at that and they'll think, well, see, the, the thing is, what they should have done is they should have just, you know, pivoted and they should have, should have gone online to begin with. No, 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 that's, that's not the point. The point was that they misunderstood who their audience was. They misunderstood the effect of actually reading something in person. They misread the entire situation altogether. That's what I see happening to churches right now as they think, well, gosh, the the physical gathering is an inhibiting factor to our growth. I see, no, it's the actual thing that keeps you in line with God's plan and keeps you distinct from everything else. Because if people can simply consume your church virtually, and I use that term very explicitly, consume your church virtually, they will quickly learn that they can find something themselves to consume that is far better than your church. And for that matter, any church, because why can't they just cobble together any kind of worship experience that they want that suits at at any given time, with any music that they want, with any playlist, with any selection of sermons, and you've, you've already thrown out all of the sacraments, you've thrown out the discipline, you've thrown out the community, all the things that don't translate into a virtual context there. So, yeah, this is a topic I'm, I'm very passionate about because I see 
pastors making the same mistakes that they have been making for some time, thinking that the internet is a way of expanding their influence when they don't realize that in many ways, adapting to every internet change is precisely the thing that is already rendering them irrelevant. So we have a confluence of factors here. We have maybe poor ecclesiology within the church in general, including even among pastors. And you have COVID-19, which has accelerated some trends. You have the polarization, you have the uh, rejection of authority and the rise of technology that makes online church, so-called online church, even (laughs) uh, possible. It really seems like there's, it's not just one or two things. It's all these factors that are coming together uh, to create what we're experiencing right now. Is this without precedent? Is this sort of thing happened before where, uh, you know, there's been all these factors that have merged together that have made people need to rediscover church again? When you think about the grand sweep of centuries, at least in, in the Western church where I'd be more familiar, then you can come up with any number of different upheavals. But this one is... The only thing I can think of, and I vetted this with with a friend, Andy Crouch, the only thing we could come up with in terms of a precedent was the Black Death of the 14th century. And the reason we say that is, I mean, of course, you think about being in France in World War I or Germany or England in World War II. Of course, those are a big deal. But those situations didn't necessarily ban people from gathering as the church. But a pandemic does. A uh, pandemic has those, those effects of making each other the very threat. And for those people in the 14th century, they didn't really know exactly what was happening, but they knew that you could contract it from other people and hence why they did not gather. But that's, of course, a similar situation right now where the gathering is itself the threat, especially if it's indoors, especially if there, people are unvaccinated, especially if there's no masks or distancing involved. and so. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is a, that's not a parallel. You can't go back and say, well, just think about this disruption. No, it's not about just a disruption to the church. It's about a disruption that prevents us from being able to gather. And then you do add in another factor, which is that our ability to, our ability to, to connect and access and get delivery and everything from the internet is exactly what has made this shutdown not nearly as painful as it would have been otherwise. In fact, I think a lot of the plans that have been made just assume, a lot of the shutdowns assume that, well, of course, it's still still okay because most of us can still work from home. Most of us can still get our food delivered. Most of us can still continue to function. Most of us can keep ourselves entertained there. So you have this variety of factors of, okay, a pandemic, unlike something we've seen in a really long time, which prevents us from gathering, and the opportunity to be able to stay at home and be kind of okay without seeing people because you can still FaceTime them. You can still podcast with them. You can still do all that kind of stuff. And so you can see why the church would want to do the same kind of pivot to say, well, of course we can't gather in person. So therefore let's take advantage of this online thing. And I'm grateful because it is better than not being able to see and keep up updated with people at all. But the problem is, Confusing it as a contingency measure with a strategy going forward is almost like saying, okay, well, then why would we ever go back to schools in person again? Isn't it 
way more efficient? Isn't it way cheaper to essentially just let everybody customize their own educational experience at home online? Well, there's a reason most people wouldn't do that. Most people aren't suggesting that. And I'm really not sure why church feels like it, it's, it's, it's an exception to that rule. I mean, you don't see colleges saying, oh, good, this proves that we are irrelevant, that we don't need to gather, that we can sell all of these campuses, which are hugely expensive <laughs> to be able to maintain. Why don't you see colleges doing that? Well, because there's still an educational element where being gathered together helps in community. Well, apply that to the church. That's, that's so helpful and perceptive, I think. So, Colin, I, one part of the book, I think it was in your chapter on preaching and teaching, you do make the point that, you know, a lot of pastors you talk to are saying it takes longer to make disciples than it used to. You can't begin assuming very much. And I think the same is true when it comes to discipling people about what church is and what it should look like. What advice would you give to pastors who have maybe a consumeristic congregation with a set of assumptions about the church that might not be grounded in scripture? How can pastors begin to teach them what church looks like and why it's worth it, even though it's sometimes inconvenient and costly? Well, that without at the risk of shameless self-promotion, that was the whole heart behind this book. We were hoping and still hope that this book is exactly that means to be able to try to help people. Um, my own congregation has, it's um, some 1,200 members, average age, somewhere in the 20s, coming from a wide variety of church backgrounds, mostly Baptistic, but, but some other ones as well. And there are not a lot of shared assumptions about what the church is for. And that's the people that we wrote this book to. Um, it was just put in their hands to say, hey, so why, why do we do a sermon instead of just a, a dialogue? Why wouldn't we just have a small group discussion about something? Or church discipline, isn't that, um, doesn't that sound mean? I mean that, that, that a mean concept? Or why do we even bother with the Bible? Why wouldn't we shift toward interviewing people doing cool stuff, which a lot of churches do today? Um, it was just all those basic questions. Who's supposed to lead? I mean, does the Bible say anything about about who's supposed to run a church, a lot of different ecclesiologies there. So that really was the whole heart behind this. And I would say, to, to borrow a, a common phrase when it comes to a consumeristic mindset in a church, I guess I, I think about it this way. Sometimes we can complain a lot about younger generations, and then you stop and say, but who taught the younger generations? <laughs> Well, who taught people that they should come to church as a consumer? Well, churches. Churches taught them that. So I would, would stop and say, in your congregation, are you making disciples whose faith can withstand a pandemic, can withstand you know, just an information deluge of confusion out there uh, with discernment? Of people who can testify to the goodness of Jesus Christ, even at a time when, when the church has a pretty low reputation, is your church producing those people? Or is the church producing people who are pretty dependent on, on emotional experiences week to week or, or the teaching of a particular person and that person's ability to apply the Bible? I mean, if you're doing that, I would just say repent. 
that it's not it's not equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry that Paul uh, told the church in Ephesus to do. And so that's where I would would simply start. And and I have to say also that you can get away with church consumption in a place like Birmingham, Alabama, uh, where I live, one of the kind of capitals of the American Bible Belt. But I have a hard time thinking you can get away with it the same way in Toronto, but you'd be the expert on that one. No, it, it's, it's, I tell people we make uh, Portland and Seattle look like the Bible Belt. So <laughs> it just won't work here at all. <laughs> so, it, colleague, you've covered so much ground in this book and you've covered some of the topics, you know, about preaching and teaching, why we need to gather, why it's important to join a church and not just, you know, float around, why church discipline is necessary and what it looks like, managing tension in relationships, leadership, you know, virtual church. You cover so much. What have you found is really resonating with people in, in, since the book has come out? And, and what are you finding people are struggling with so far as they read the book? Well, certainly a lot of people don't love the concept of, of disagreement with the virtual church. I mean, it is, it is such a no-brainer because we've already made so many assumptions about what the church is that the convenience aspects of virtual church are just so obvious to people because if you don't, I mean, just think of all the things that can come up in your life. You've got kids who are sick. You've got kids who are struggling with, with, with different, with behavior. You've got um, vacations that you want to go on. You've got lake houses that you want to visit. I mean, the convenience is simply unmatched. And so for a lot of people, they really do struggle with the virtual of the criticism of virtual church because it just seems to be such an such a benefit uh, regarding you know given what they already assume about the church, which I think well, but if your church is this family community of people that you you see and love and trust and you're serving and you're volunteering and you're taking the sacraments and you're baptizing your children things like that I don't see you get my point though they've already relativized those views of the church. So just, just seems like a benefit there. Uh, so that's one of the part that people are certainly struggling with, which we expected, um, which was one, one point of the book. But I would say that the part that people are resonating with, I was just in New York uh, recently meeting with a, with a group and they were talking about their philosophy of ministry, which is just show up. <laughs> and and I, I pulled out the book and I opened it to the chap, the conclusion, and I pointed to the, my subhead where I say, just show up. And as I'm interviewing new members of our church, that's what I tell them. Hey, our system will work. It'll, you, will, you will make friends. You will grow in your faith. You'll grow in your knowledge. You'll grow in church discipline. Or not church discipline, personal, uh, spiritual disciplines. You'll grow your understanding of God's word, your prayer life. All of these things will happen if you show up. And if you don't show up, those things just can't happen. And I know that sounds so basic, but that's the, that's the problem that I hear from church leaders consistently. Those are the problems that I see, that we have a, a situation, and I don't know what it's like north of the border in the same ways, but you just don't really have an expectation among even serious Christians of regular church attendance. It's just not there. Um, it's, I will go to church one to two times a month if I don't have anything better going on. But if I have anything better going on, I've got a 
a bachelor party or I've got a vacation or I have a, I don't know, I just got some friends visiting or something. They just, it's just not a, just not a priority for them. So it's no surprise, or the, especially with kids, especially travel teams and things like that. That's a, that's a, that takes a lot of people away as well. So that's the part that I think is resonating, especially with church leaders to say, I don't know what I'm supposed to do to be able to make disciples if people, if people don't show up. Um, and that's, that's a good point. <laughs> so I hope, I hope uh, more people will, will read this or, or even just hear the podcast and think, oh, that makes sense. If I'm going to benefit from these things, I have to show up. <laughs> I love that part. What's now? What's the next step? We have good news. It's easier than you can imagine. Just show up yeah. and ask how you can help. That's right. Yeah. That's the big takeaway from the book. I love that. That's It's so basic and yet so foundational. Ask how you can help. I mean, it's just people ask me about, about home groups. Okay, home groups are notorious. Like they're wonderful things, but they're, they're, they're flawed. Just like every, call them small groups, community groups, missional groups, whatever you want to call them. Um, but that's the best, the basic thing that transcends the whole thing. Okay. If you show up and say, how can I help? That's, that's everything. It's just, that's okay. So you're going to notice the person over here who needs to be encouraged. You're going to notice the person over here who, who needs to be taught something. And then when your time, when, when a baby, I mean, my, my wife just uh, texted me a few minutes ago and said, Hey, we've got two people coming to to give us food. We had, um, I've had a baby a couple months ago and they got a couple people bringing us food today. Well, why does that happen? Because we show up because every single week we open up our doors to people we love and they come in and we share God's word and we pray for one another. We cry with one another. We confess to one another. It's just what we do. And it's just a given on our schedule. It doesn't matter how I'm feeling that day. Just, I know there's going to be 20 people who show up. They're just going to show up at my house and that God is going to bless it. Not because I have some elaborate plan, because that's just what he does there. And so the people who benefit are the ones who simply say, I'm here and how can I help? I think sometimes that basic wisdom is what we need to be able to live out and experience the profound biblical realities that were promised throughout Scripture. I love the showing up idea because if one, it it builds that regular pattern of I'm not going to decide if I feel like it or not. I'm just going to do it, and it really undermines the whole uh, the whole idea of consumerism, right? I'm going to show up to get. It's showing up intentionally to serve others. So yeah, I just love that. That's so helpful. Colin, we've been bombarded with so much bad news about the church. Uh, church two, uh, me too. Hashtags abusive leadership within the church. It isn't hard to find reasons to become jaded with the church. And in the book, you and Jonathan Lehman write, the two of us are not naive about how many churches fall (laughs) short of this vision. You might think we underestimate the challenges. On the contrary, because of our positions, we know far more than most about the dark side of churches. How have you fought the temptation of becoming jaded against the church? Well, one thing is with a very robust sense of my own sin. Um, that's, I don't know if that's a spiritual gift or not, but, oh, the Lord over the last decade, especially has been persistent about exposing new layers of, of my sin, of my selfishness, of my not arrogance, pride. You can just go on and on and on if we want to turn this into a confessional, but, um, and that, 
that helps then when I'm, I'm looking at a situation in the church to say, boy, I, I, I could see myself in that same situation if God had not brought this conviction into my life through this hardship. Another way I put it is that I don't trust any church leaders who haven't failed. Um, and that doesn't mean, oh, Gary, church leader has to go through an abuse scandal. or No, no, no. It's just that leadership is a, it's a crucible of, of exposing you. And you are lucky. You are lucky if God exposes your need to repent early before you can do a lot of damage, before you become Mark Driscoll in the Mars Hill podcast there. And I would say the way I've avoided some of the jadedness is because I've had a front row seat to countless disasters. And yes, I've been able to learn some lessons from that, which has been good. Another thing it's done is just helped me to see that no matter how, how wonderful a church leader is, that leader still falls way short on some things. So there just isn't anybody who's remotely close to perfect out there, starting, starting with you and me. But just pick whoever you think is the ideal pastor. And I guarantee you that person falls way short in different ways. And I've just been in a position to be able to see that and to be able to experience that and be able to, even in some ways, to be hurt by that. And so I think there's a difference between the kind of leaders who simply are normal people who have flaws, but they're aware of them and they're, and they're seeking repentance and they're open about that. And the leaders who are flawed, but they do not have any interest in introspection. There seems to be no, no spiritual pursuit there. That's, that's the difference. And I'm plenty jaded and have no time for those pastors in that situation. And, and I, I saw that early on. I'm going to mention Mark Driscoll earlier, Marcel podcast. I saw that early on in my career. Um, but yeah, then you, then you see everybody else and you just see, oh, well, everybody's got their own things. And that's not a way of saying, oh yeah, everybody's just abuse. No, it's, that's not, not everybody is abusing. Um, but there are people who, disappoint. There are people who don't do what they should be doing. There are people who get scared. There are countless pastors who are simply overwhelmed with the leadership demands of the last 18 months, and they are simply not good enough to be able to lead a congregation in, in you know, really well through this. I mean, on the one hand, I guess that I guess I could just be super judgmental toward pastors and say, how dare you not be good at X, Y, Z? Or I can stop and say, man, it seems like almost everybody's struggling. Um, this just seems to be out of most people's depth right now. And being out of most people's depth is precisely the place where God seems to really do wonderful things if we are repentant and humble in that atmosphere. So no matter how bad it gets, I, I mean, I guess that's maybe it's the Old Testament talking there, but no matter how bad it gets in judgment, there's still the beckoning call of the Lord to say, but repent of your sins and turn back to me. And so that's the opportunity I see for the church right now is certainly to repent um, and to come back to him and to, but to also to trust his word that Discipline is necessary. Authority is good when wielded 
um, in a biblical manner, but you don't just throw out everything the Bible teaches. In fact, those are the very means God intends to use to be able to help us through some of the crises that we see today in the church. This relates to a tweet I read this morning. Somebody said, we talk a lot about church hurt and the failure of Christian leadership. But what's also true is that you, O congregant, have the power of death and life in your words and actions and the lives of your shepherds. And then she said this, and this got me. She said, I don't know one person in ministry right now who is okay. I don't know if that's true or not, but I get the sense that a lot of pastors are struggling right now. What would you say to a pastor who feels tired and discouraged at this moment? It seems to be nearly universal in my experience as well. I'd say it's it's not going to last forever. It's going to be okay. And I would probably give my standard Monday morning advice, which is, yeah, don't make any decisions about your future on a Monday morning. <laughs> if you're a pastor, um, it's just probably, probably things are not, not as bad as they appear. And just things, things are always changing. So you just don't know what's around the corner. And so if, if possible, if you can, if you can hang on, if you can trust God to be able to take you to places of dependence, of places of even desperation, then aren't you where David was in the Psalms? Aren't you where, where Jesus was in the garden? Um, that's not the, not the worst place to be. That, that's, that's fully within the will of God there. That's a, that's a place where God promises to meet you there. So maybe it's our, maybe it's our ministry idols that are crumbling. Maybe it's our, maybe it's our pride that's being, that's being torn away. Maybe this is a, maybe this is setting us up for God to work in, in revival. I mean, I, one of the things I did a lot this, this summer was study, especially the years of, of 1968 to about 1975 in the United States. And those were, it's hard to be too much more tumultuous than those years. And yet that was, those were the very years of the Jesus movement. This one of the more recent mass revivals in American history that has shaped today's church in ways that we would find it impossible to even categorize because it's been that profound in terms of how we pray, how we worship, the music we use, how we teach, everything was shaped by that. So I would just encourage those pastors to say that um, if you can at all hang on, well, first of all, Christ is hanging on to you. That's one thing to be completely confident in. But if, if you can hang in there, just it won't last. It won't last forever. And you don't know what's around the corner. It could be, um, could be a, a movement of God. If, if history is any indication, it could be a movement of God, unlike anything we've seen in a long time. That's certainly what I'm praying for. Yeah, me too. Amen. Amen to that. I want to transition and ask you a couple of personal questions. What have you been learning recently? What I've been learning recently, I think it's kind of, um, when I do these interviews, I'm often speaking about what's on my mind at that moment. And so what I'm learning recently is simply how profoundly the world changed 25 years ago with the ubiquity of the internet. First, the adoption of the personal computer, those old modems, but then also especially the iPhone in 2007. And I'm also reading a book right now about Luther and the rise of the printing industry and, and how that helped to launch this theological revolution. And 
uh, called we, which we call the Protestant Reformation. And I think it's because we are we're just at the dawn um, of a of something that's going to change basically everything and how we live uh, with the internet. And so I'm thinking about that, and I'm trying to encourage church leaders to say while you're skimming the surface of a lot of the conflict you see right now, you've got to dig deeper to understand the technological revolution that is giving rise to so much of this conflict today. And you've got to be dealing with that at that level, not at a superficial level. Do you have a book coming out on that topic? Uh, a lot of this is related to my, my, my teaching upcoming on cultural apologetics. Um, and, and it's really just part of my job at TGC is, is to try to help church leaders think through those kinds of things. So no, nothing. I mean, I, one of the things I'm going to do in this cultural apologetics class that, that I'm teaching at, at Beeson Divinity School is to each class period, the 10 class periods, I want to consider an artifact, a historical artifact that transforms society and transform the church. So for example, one of them, you, you might, people might not think much about the cotton gin. How, in the, how would the cotton gin be related to the church? Well, the cotton gin is one of the most profound things that has shaped the American church today. Well, why would that be the case? Well, when it was invented late 19th, 18th century, most Southerners thought that most Americans thought slavery was dying out. Instead, the cotton gin, by separating seed from the, the cotton, made, it, made cotton extremely profitable. That then dramatically increased slavery, which led to a theological appropriation of slavery as a good thing, which became endemic to Southern evangelical Christianity and in various permutations actually continues to this day. So that's kind of what I mean. I want to do that with a lot of different things, including the iPhone, the telegraph, the automobile, you know, a simple thing that I've heard many people observe before. As soon as you had an automobile, there went church discipline. Because if there's no physical boundaries on attending church, then there's no, it doesn't matter if you get kicked out of a church. You just go to a next one. You can make up a story there. So that's, that's how I'm trying to help prospective pastors think about things. And comes a lot from my, my work just in online publishing of how dramatically, just in my 11 years in this job, it has changed dramatically in those that's 11 awesome. years. In the next 11 years, it's going to be more change. Wow. That's cool. And what's encouraging you recently? Well, I would say I'm encouraged by a lot of different things. Uh, the previous book that I wrote, you mentioned earlier, Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age, that book is all about movements of God and, and his people living out, especially the commands of the book of Romans, in incredibly encouraging ways. And so I think as long as you get away from the... Well, I'll maybe just take a step back here and explain. That book has not been some sort of bestseller. And when you compare it to the books that have been bestsellers during that time period, it should tell you what you need to know about what's going on. Because the fact is, good news right now does not sell. Bad news, from whatever angle it's coming from, that's the stuff that sells. That's not a coincidence there. So that's the, that's the difficult side of things. But the other side of things is that if you actually just open your eyes, if you get away from their Twitter feed, you get away from the screen, and you just start to look for God, your neighborhood, your church, your family, start to look for, you know, start to ask people, you start to read books, 
all of a sudden, your perspective really changes quite a bit. And so that was just something I learned to do years ago because of my job being so immersed online. I learned I had to look for God elsewhere. And when I did, I just saw him doing amazing things everywhere that never makes it into a best-selling book and never makes it into, um, you know, a Twitter thread there. So I, I don't know how I, I could make it in this job if that weren't um, something God had taught me to do. So I always have sources of encouragement there and just going to keep plugging along that way, even if it's not the thing that, that makes the money, not the thing that gets the attention. Gospel Bound is such an encouraging book and your podcast as well, just highlighting some of the positive stories and a lot of them really not well known and yet so encouraging. So I really appreciate that. I encourage everyone to read it and pick it up. Where can people find out more about you? Go to thegospelcoalition.org. Um, be the easiest place to be able to follow what I'm doing or Twitter, Colin Hansen, um, C-O-L-L-I-N-H-A-N-S-E-N. Um, as much as kind of shade that I cast on Twitter, especially. I think it's important to be able to use the media where people are finding ideas. Try to redeem it in the, of, of what you can. A lot of things the medium doesn't allow. But then to point people backward to something like the church, which is eternal, and to get them to go, to go there. So you can follow me on Twitter, but that's really, that's really what I do. Um, is to try to use those media to be able to point people back to books, people, God, church, all those wonderful things. Well, Colin, I really appreciate your book, Rediscover Church. It's such a timely book for right now. And I, overall, I appreciate your writing ministry, your editorial work, your podcasting. Uh, I benefited from your ministry over a large number of years now. So thank you. And thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's an honor to be here.